Jesus in this passage is speaking about John the Baptist. And if you don't understand who Jesus is and his relationship to John the Baptist, you can misunderstand these words entirely. So what we need to do is we need to go through the entire book of Matthew up until this point and talk about who John the Baptist is because Matthew has given us all the information that he deems necessary for us to know who John is in order to understand the words of Jesus. So John is first mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3 when we read, At this time, John the Baptist appeared in the desert of Judea. Now, Judea is in the modern-day Middle East, and if you're wondering where the desert is, well, it's the brown spot on the map. And if you were to go there to this day, it would look something like this. This was the office of John the Baptist. Now, it was very clear that John had a central thesis to his preaching, to his work, to who he was, and that central thesis of his life was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, religious folks hear the word repent, and we assume that means that we have to ask for forgiveness and give up all the fun things in our life. But a better way of understanding what repent means here is change your hearts, change your minds about what life is, because if you really trust that God or heaven can be found in ordinary moments, then you will become a greater, a more loving, a more kind, and a more peaceful person. And so John's entire thesis of his work was repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he was crying out in the wilderness for days, months, years, as people started coming from near and far to hear him. Now, Matthew then goes on to say, John was clothed in a garment of camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. Grasshoppers and wild honey were his food. And the way that Matthew writes this is that Matthew tells us that this is basically his only food that he ate. Now, something that I try to do when I read stories in the Bible is I try to make them as real as possible in my mind. And when I think of John the Baptist, the thing that really brings him into focus for me is I try to imagine his body odor. That's what makes him feel like a very real person to me. I can imagine that if someone's like, do you want to meet John the Baptist? I'd be like, I do from over there. I cannot imagine John the Baptist smelling good at all. And yet here he is out in the wilderness, eating locusts, leaving grasshoppers wild and wild honey, having a good old time, telling people, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now this caught the attention of the religious leaders, those who were centralized in power and the religious structures, and they came out and they kind of had some words for John because he wasn't following the rules. And John turned around and condemned them very heavily. He led a protest against them. This caught the attention of a man from Nazareth named Jesus who went out into the wilderness and met with John the Baptist. And according to the Gospel of Matthew, this is the only face-to-face -face interaction they had which takes place over a couple of verses. We read, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to dissuade Jesus, saying, I should be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? But Jesus replied, leave it this way for now. We must do this to completely fulfill God's justice. And so John reluctantly agrees. This is captured in a beautiful painting by Peter Paul Rubens from the 17th century, where Jesus is baptized by John. 
And then something supernatural happens according to the Gospel of Matthew. We read, immediately after Jesus had been baptized and was coming up out of the water, the sky suddenly opened up and Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and hovering over him. And with that, a voice from the heavens said, this is my own, my beloved, on whom my favor rests. And the interaction between Jesus and John is over. Now, Jesus is baptized out in the wilderness and he decides to stay in the wilderness. And the way the story is written is it implies that John stayed in one corner of the wilderness and Jesus stayed in another corner of the wilderness. That is, until something dramatic happened. John was arrested by the king of Judea. For that reason, you have to go a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew where we hear why John was arrested while in the wilderness while Jesus was also in the wilderness. That's found in Matthew 14 when we read, For King Herod had arrested John, bound him, and thrown him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had told King Herod, It is against the law for you to have her. So John the Baptist led a protest against the king because he said, It's against the rules for you to marry Herodias. Now, this may seem like a small deal to you, but I have to tell you, this was a big deal. And to understand how big of a deal it is, we have to go to a family tree of the Herod family, if I can get an amen for that. Here we are with Herod Antipas, who is King Herod in this story. He was the son of Herod the Great, who built all the things. And Herod the Great had several wives. We're going to focus on three of them for the purposes of this story. The first was a wife named Malthake. Let me hear you say Malthake this morning. Malthake was the mother of Herod Antipas. This is the primary Herod in the story of Jesus that is the king of Judea during this time. Now, Herod the Great also had a wife named Merimni I. Let me hear you say Merimni. I can't say that right. Merimni I. She had two sons, Aristobulus and Alexander. And you can tell by the one that he also had another wife named Merimni, which we will call Merimni II. She had a son named Herod Philip. Is this tracking with you yet? There's lots of Herods, lots of Merimines. Now, Herod had a sister named Salome. And Salome, his sister, had a daughter named Berenice. And because royals loved to intermarry, Berenice married her cousin, Aristobulus. Now, they had a daughter named Herodias. And Herodias is part of this story. Now, before we get to how Herodias plays into the story, we have to go over to a neighboring nation led by a king named Eratos IV, who had a daughter named Phasaelus. Now, Herod the Great was looking at his kingdom. He looked at this rival kingdom led by Eratos IV, and he said, we have got to make sure that we don't fight Eratos IV. We could lose. So he arranges a marriage as a peace treaty between his son, Herod Antipas, and Phasaelus. After they get married... Herodias marries her uh, brother-in-law, cousin, uncle, all of the above, marries uh, Herod Philip, and they have a daughter named Salome, which is named after her great-grandmother. Now, if this is confusing, we've reached the end, and this is where this now comes into play. What happened was Herod Antipas started looking at Herodias, who is his niece, sister-in-law, cousin, all rolled into one, and was like, baby, we got something going on. And he's like, why don't we hatch a plan? What if I divorce Phasaelus and you divorce my half-brother Herod Philip and you and I get married to each other? Wouldn't that be nice? There's a couple problems with this. One, 
it is against Jewish law to divorce. So Herod Antipas, who is the king of the Jews at this point, may I remind you, would have to violate his own rules to do so. However, because he is a man of privilege and status, he is able to divorce because he's also a Roman citizen, and in Rome, it is not illegal to divorce. Not only that, but as you can imagine, this divorce made somebody very angry. And that was a man named King Eratos IV who, remember, this was supposed to be a peaceful thing. And so Eratos IV, as a result of this double divorce, sent his army to march on Herod Antipas, and people died because Herod Antipas couldn't keep his hands off his niece, sister-in-law, cousin, and had to have just this person or nobody else. And as a result of all those deaths, who do you think spoke up and said, this is wrong? Well, it was the left-leaning activist in the desert named John the Baptist. He went to Herod Antipas and said, this is wrong. You can't do this. It's against the law, literally against the law for you to do this. Now, this took some courage to say this. Why? Because Herod Antipas doesn't want to hear what John the Baptist has to say. So because he spoke out against Herod Antipas, King Herod had him thrown into jail. Now, this is a very important moment in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, I would say that everything up until this point is the introduction of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's here that Jesus becomes a very different person going forward in this Gospel. We read, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he went back to Galilee. So he left the big brown spot on the map and went up north to the greener spot to a place called Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's here that Jesus made his home in Capernaum, and he had this sense that now that John had been arrested, he was going to do something about it. And while he didn't have the money or the resources to go out into the world and say, like, I need to hire a lawyer, I need to make sure this is just, he started going and preaching to people, not in the wilderness like John, but in the tiny villages around the Sea of Galilee. And the way that Matthew tells the story says, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim what? Well, he began to proclaim the exact same words as John. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, Jesus had this utmost respect for John the Baptist, and he said, what that guy preaches, what he says, that has given me life, and I want to share it with others. You see, in Matthew's gospel, John influenced Jesus' understanding of God more than anyone else. Jesus viewed John as a spiritual mentor, someone who he greatly admired and said, that guy understands God better than anyone else I have encountered. And he went out into the wilderness and did his thing and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I think the next evolution of this is not just to do this in the desert, but to take it to the small villages around the Sea of Galilee and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, let's not lose focus of what's happening here. This message and taking it to villages requires a tremendous amount of courage because John had gotten arrested for that theology, which led him to protest against the king. And so Jesus is now championing that same theology, and he's going toward villages and cities where there's more people who can hear what it is that Jesus is saying, and it's making it very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Now, after pronouncing this message, Jesus doesn't just stop there. He also heals crowds that are around him, people who are sick. He provides health care for in chapter 4. 
Then over the next three chapters, he gives the greatest sermon in human history called the Sermon on the Mount. And then he backs up what is in the Sermon on the Mount by doing something really remarkable. He goes to a tax collector named Matthew and says, I want you to follow me. And while that may not sound like a big deal to you today, I have to tell you, imagine someone sold out you and your family for money, and that's basically who Matthew is. This is picked up in the beautiful painting by Caravaggio in which Matthew, who's right here, is pointing to himself and he can hardly believe that Jesus is asking him to follow him and not somebody else. So after calling a tax collector named Matthew, Jesus continues to provide health care for those who are in need. And then Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to provide health care for more people who are in need while Jesus continues to proclaim in the cities around him that, that people should repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, all of these things that Jesus is doing, it started to gain some notoriety. So much so that in Matthew 11, John hears about Jesus and what he's doing, and he starts to ask himself some questions because he's been in prison for a while now at this point. We read, while John was in prison, he heard about the work the Messiah was performing and sent a message by way of his disciples to ask Jesus. And the message that he sent was this, are you the one who is to come or are we to look for another? And Jesus receives this message and he receives it in front of a big crowd and they ask him the question and Jesus responds by saying this, go back and tell, report to John what you hear and see. Those who are blind recover their sight. Those who cannot walk are able to walk. Those with leprosy are cured. Those who are deaf hear. The dead are raised to life. And the anawim, the have-nots, have the good news preached to them. In other words, there is healing and hope everywhere. Go back and tell John the Baptist this good news. Because this is essentially the manifestation of the theology of repenting for the kingdom of heaven is near. So the messengers go back to John the Baptist, and Jesus looks at this crowd that is now looking at him, wondering what he's going to say next, and he begins to address the crowd, which is where the words that we just heard were, were spoken to. And it's here that I want us to pause before we dive into those words and ask ourselves the question, what is Jesus feeling as he talks about John here? Well, I would think that he's feeling very upset at the system, right? He is ticked off at the man. And I would describe Jesus' feeling as he is speaking about John, who is in prison for, you know, protesting against something that needed to be protested against. I think that Jesus is feeling disillusioned betrayal. After all, Jesus has paid taxes to this system who has imprisoned the person that he thinks understands God better than anybody else. So with disillusioned betrayal, he speaks to this crowd and he says these words, what did you go out to the wasteland for? What did you go out there to see? Was it a reed swaying in the wind? Tell me, what did you go out to see? Someone luxuriously dressed? No. Those who dress luxuriously are to be found in royal palaces. People like King Herod, he sub, uh, subliminally applies. He then goes on to say, so what did you go out to see there? A prophet in the wilderness? Yes, a prophet. But let's be honest, he was also more than a prophet, wasn't he? The truth is, he says, history has not known a person born of woman who is greater than John the baptizer. Now, these are big words that Jesus says, because Jesus is aware of who Moses is, who King David is, and yet he says the greatest person ever born was John the Baptist. 
This isn't surprising when you read this story up until this point because Jesus has modeled his ministry after the theology that was taught to him by John the Baptist. But what he says next is quite surprising even if you've read the story up to this point. Because he says, yet the least born into the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And at this point, if you're like me, you just start typing exclamation marks because you can barely comprehend what he's saying. Because what Jesus is telling this crowd in his disillusioned betrayal is, you want to know what guides my life? Let me tell you. It's this idea that every person I encounter is worth more to God than the very person that I believe to be the most valuable to God. Every person I encounter is more valuable to God than the person that I believe to be the most valuable to God. So I've got John, who I think understood God better than anybody else, and I have this philosophy that the exact opposite person of John is also part of the kingdom of heaven and loved by God. And so Jesus invites a tax collector who raised money to feed the system that eventually imprisoned John to be part of his disciples. At, at this point that we need to stop for a moment and marvel at how inclusive the kingdom of God is. And while I have encountered some people who claim to be inclusive, particularly people on the left or the right, they say, oh, I'm an inclusive person. I've found very few people who are as inclusive as Jesus Christ. This idea that you go to the person who is betraying the country and the person who is standing up for justice and you say, actually, it's all of you that are part of this. The inclusion of the kingdom of God is remarkable and difficult for us to keep up with as we live our lives today. Jesus then goes on to say, what comparison can I make with this generation? And he's speaking specifically about the religion of the generation and what people believe. He says, they are like children shouting out to others as they sit in the marketplace. We piped you a tune, but you wouldn't dance. We sang you a dirge, but you wouldn't mourn. In other words, it's like he's saying, look, this generation believes that obedience is the point of religion. They sing us songs and they say, start dancing. They sing us another song and say, start crying. They believe that obedience is the point of religion. But you know where that leads, he says? He tells a fascinating story. Remember John, he says? For John came neither eating nor drinking, didn't drink a drop of alcohol. He ate food that was supposedly a very strict diet. And you know what they said about him? They said he's possessed by a demon. You can't be more religious or more perfect than John, Jesus says. And you know what they said? He's possessed. Meanwhile, I came along and I eat and drink whatever I want. The chosen one came along eating and drinking. And they say, this one is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this is the reputation that I got for doing the opposite of what John did, even though everyone criticized John and said he may be possessed by a demon. Now, it's here that I have to tell you, I grew up in a religion in which I was told that Jesus never drank alcohol. And here is Jesus saying, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. He doesn't want us to miss this. And he even has a reputation as being a drunkard, which means that at some point there was a dinner party where some people were sitting around and they leaned to one another and said, is Jesus drunk? And I have to tell you, this has helped me understand my picture of Jesus significantly. Not to say that you have to go drink copious amounts of alcohol, but to say, oh, Jesus and John are different people. We often think of Jesus as John the Baptist rather than thinking of Jesus 
is Jesus. Jesus is the guy who's at the party living it up. John is the guy who's like, I'm gonna live in the desert and be happy out there just eating honey. Those are both valid life paths, right? So why is it that we say, oh, well, they're actually the same. They have to fit in this nice, neat box. And yet here's Jesus saying, I drink and ate everything. And they said, oh, he's a drunkard and glutton. John watched everything he ate, everything he drank. And they said, oh, he's a demon. This idea that Jesus taps into was recently tapped into by our patron saint of today, St. Taylor Swift, who once said, the haters gonna hate, 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 and hate. It's the same idea here, right? And what Jesus is getting at, when you consider the context of what he's saying, he says, if you believe obedience is the point of religion, then you will become a judgmental person. If you encounter a judgmental religious person, it's because they think obedience is the point of religion. And he says, I'm here to tell you, it's not the point to follow a bunch of rules in order to follow God. That's not what we're trying to do here when we say repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Instead, Jesus is pointing out that authenticity is far more important than obedience. It's much more important for you to be who God has created you to be than it is to fall in line. It's like he's saying, learning how to include every human being as their authentic selves is the point of religion, right? And I have to tell you, I speak to other couples who are outside of this church and they're in other states and they talk about what it's like for them to go to church. And it becomes very clear that one partner doesn't like going to church because they have the sense that if they stood up and said what they actually believed, they wouldn't be accepted. This is a common theme I encounter. And yet when we go back to the source of Christianity, his main argument is our goal is to make sure that we accept and include every person for their authentic selves. I am frequently asked, how is it that you can be a Christian and support gay marriage? I say to them, how can I not? Because this whole point is that we are trying to learn how to include every human being as their authentic selves, and that's the point of what we do. And when I think about who Jesus was and how he led people forward, this pushed them into a brand new reality. But Jesus isn't done here. We read, then Jesus prayed, Abba God, creator of heaven and earth, to you I offer praise. For what have you hidden from me, um, from the learned and the clever, you have revealed to the youngest children. Now, I don't know enough Christians who actually believe what Jesus says here, but the only appropriate response is to look at your kids or your friend's kids or some kids that you know and say to yourself, huh, they know something I don't know. Specifically in my life, I look at my kids and their cousins and I have to ask myself, what do these munchkins know about God that I don't? Because if Jesus is serious, which I think he is, then we have to remind ourselves that they know something about God that us adults have a hard time keeping up with. And I think that this was tapped into by a brilliant singer-songwriter who I saw a few years ago in concert, a man named Ben Rector. And I went to his concert, I hadn't heard any of his songs, and he played this one song where the chorus just stuck with me. And every day since then, it's just continued to challenge me and shape the way I think about what it means to be an older human as I continue to grow. This song that he sang was a song called Old Friends, and the chorus says this, can you take me back 
when we were just kids who weren't scared of getting older. Now, I am almost 40 years old, so I am worried about becoming old. And what this song tells us is quite simply a profound point that has been very helpful to me. You become old when you fear becoming older. When you look at the next birthday and you say, oh, 40, oh, what have I been doing with my life? You are old then. <laughs> Compare and contrast that with my daughter, who, this is not a stage photograph, this is her on her ninth birthday. <laughs> Elation. This is a screen grab because she's just praising the heavens that she's finally nine. It's very similar to my son who turned six recently <laughs> doing the same thing. Which raises the question, what on earth happens to us? What's the birthday that we say, oh no, I'm getting old, as opposed to, I can't believe I'm getting older. And so I asked my kids, hey, Bodhi, Maya, could you tell me what it is that you like about getting older? And my son, who's six, said, actually, Dad, I want to be younger. And I was surprised by that. And I said, why is that? And he said, because you have to do more boring stuff when you get older. <laughs> Makes me wonder about the example I'm setting for my son. <laughs> my daughter, on the other hand, I said, what is it that you, excites you about getting older? She says, I like growing older because I get to do new things that I couldn't do when I was younger. When does this stop? Why is it that we have to stop doing new things? Like, the whole idea of birthdays is that we can do more and more as they keep progressing until all of a sudden we reach 25 and we get the discount for rental cars. And we're like, that's it. I've reached the summit of my life. But at the same time, there is so much the world has to offer. Why is it that we don't approach these new birthdays as saying like, I am gonna get to do stuff that I have never done before next year? There's no age limit on that thinking. Think about my son who says, I don't wanna do the boring stuff. I don't either, Bodhi. None of us wanna do the boring stuff, right? And yet, I'm not a victim to this life. I can choose to do things that aren't boring. I can choose to do things that are exciting. And when I ask the question, what is it that happens to us? I think about the difference between who I am and who I was at nine or who I was at six. And I look back at my life and I think of all the memories and all the stress, and all the betrayals, and the heartache. And I realized the difference between me and my kids is that I've experienced a lot of shame, regret, heartache, and death, right? Like a lot. And I look through all of these memories and I say, oh, it's so much harder to be 39 than it is to be nine. And the hard part is like you can't avoid these things, but I've found that when I'm dreading birthdays, it's often because I allow these things to define who I am rather than accepting them as part of life. And so when we hold up the mirror and ask ourselves, what is being taught by these words from Jesus Christ that have been handed down to us from generation to generation? It's this move that Jesus is trying to say, like, it's more important to be authentic than obedient. And the kingdom of heaven is always including more people. And the point of religion, therefore, is to be inclusive toward people and their authentic selves. And when we approach a birthday with regret or fear, or we say, like, I didn't get done as much as I wanted to this year, it's you and me having a hard time looking at the past year and saying, like, oh, you're not, you're not worthy of love. You didn't do enough. 
we have a hard time including and loving our authentic selves. And we hear this message of Jesus, which includes everybody, the worst, which is Matthew, and the best, which is John the Baptist. And we have to remember that Jesus included all of them and said they are all part of the story of Christ. If Matthew and John are part of the story of Christ, then you and I, my friends, are part of the story of Christ. You can't do bad worse than Matthew, and you can't do better than John, and you'll fall somewhere in between, and you are still included in this whole message, movement, excitement, anything but boring. When you think about the fact that people will say you're either a drunkard or you're possessed by a demon, you think about how much people are quick to pass judgment on one another. And yet you look at your own life and you say, well, maybe... Maybe I don't need to pass as much judgment on others. And you start to give people more and more grace and kindness. Well, this is what I've been working on with therapy and my therapist. I've learned that you deserve the grace and kindness that you so freely give to others. And when I hear these words sung by Ben Rector, I have to tell you, I think about these all the time because I am afraid of growing old. And it's always reminding me, how is it that I am growing older and this has been so different than who I was as a kid? And I start to feel bad about myself. And it's here that I have to stop and ask myself, can I learn to approach this fear with curiosity rather than judgment? Why is it that I'm afraid? Well, I don't think I got as much done as I want to get done. How much would be enough? Well, I don't know. Well, Craig, is that really the problem then? Or, I don't really like what I'm doing in my personal life. I want to do something different. Okay, then, do something different. And we have this idea that Jesus always asks us for more, and yet you read this passage of Scripture where he talks about John the Baptist, and he talks about his life, and you realize that Jesus is always the one who is affirming, encouraging you to be your authentic self, always encouraging us to be more inclusive, and then he tops it off with these beautiful words at the end that shows us that if you have trouble accepting yourself or accepting another, these words can center us and bring us back to who Christ is to remind us that Christ doesn't ask us to do extra things in order to be loved. Jesus ends this whole passage by saying, come to me, all you who labor and carry heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Not more things to do, not a checklist, not a different way of being, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon your shoulders, he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Here you will find the rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friends, this is who Christ is. And in the midst of disillusioned betrayal, he was willing to say, Let's talk about religion and what it's supposed to be. Inclusive acceptance of authentic selves of one another, including you. May we remember this as we go forward this week. My friends, may you give yourself the grace and kindness that you so freely give to others. May you trust the radical inclusiveness of the kingdom of God, and may that inclusiveness inspire you to be less judgmental. May you welcome your next birthday with undiluted joy, and live your life without any fear of growing older. And may you discover childlike wonder and appreciation for this life, and may that wonder inspire you to become a more loving person. Amen.